Okay, everyone, we're going to get started. Hope you enjoyed lunch. Hope you had some good dessert. There'll be seconds up here afterwards if you want more, as always. Thanks to Roots Chris. And so it's good to be back. Hope you enjoyed last week. I was on vacation. I don't know if you were or not, but uh, getting my nice bronze tan, as you can see. That's a, for those of just the listening to the audio of this, I'm incredibly pale. Uh, so tanning does not happen. But <clears throat> it was good to be at the beach, be, had to spend time with my family, and now we're back. And we're back in the middle of this section of Deuteronomy, where we left off two weeks ago. And this is a section where God is, through Moses, telling Israel how they are going to live as a society when they get into the land of Canaan. When they go and displace the particular peoples of the Canaanites, not everybody that they meet, but the particular peoples that God sends them to displace, they're mainly to uh, drive out any vestiges of their Canaanite religious identity. That's the key to the conquest, is God is, is intent on driving out not the people as people, but the practices of the people. And so there's the, that's the entire emphasis of the conquest, is to purge the land of the practices of the people, and whether through driving the people out, through defeating the ones who stay and fight, or through the people coming and actually entering into Israel through conversion, people like Rahab and her family and household. So <clears throat> that's the goal of what God's doing through Israel. And in the section of Deuteronomy chapter 17, He's giving them... Uh, he's talked about how they're going to treat the religious practices of the land and how they're going to establish justice in the land. One of the things that the Canaanites uh, were being judged for was their wickedness, for their perverting of justice and their uh, wanton violence and immorality and, and just all of the things that God does not want Israel to be. So, when He talks to Israel in chapter 17... He actually picked up one verse previous, uh, chapter 16, 21. He says, Do not set up any wooden Asherah pole beside the altar you build to the Lord your God, and do not erect a sacred stone, for these the Lord your God hates. These were symbols of the Canaanite fertility religion. The Asherah pole was the female genitalia representative, and the sacred stone was the male genitalia representative, and people worshipped through those, around those, in front of those, through sexual practices to try to get the fertility of the gods uh, to be bestowed upon their own crops, their own uh, livestock, or their own selves to ensure their fertility. And all of that, God's saying, none of it. We're not going to have any of that. So it's not like you set up a temple to me and then worship on the side, Baal and Asherah. No, there's no other God before me. First commandment. And so he's making that clear. Then he's saying, <clears throat> do not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep that has any defect or flaw in it. That would be detestable to him. So when you do sacrifice, it's going to be give me the best of what you have and I in turn will ensure your fertility. I will ensure your uh, ongoing continuance in the land. Which is what the Canaanite ritual practice was supposed to do, what the Canaanites thought it would do. And God's saying, no, I'm the one that does it. But just because it's, it's me and not the Canaanite gods doesn't mean you can just kind of give me your leftovers and presume that, that I'll just take care of everything. No, you still have to give me your best in your worship. You still have to live your life in obedience to me. Give me your best. 
And I will in turn give you the best and ensure that you always have the ability to bring forth uh, and, and to care for everything that I've given you. So it's this reciprocal relationship between the vassal and the suzerain that we've talked about. And so then it goes on to say, now he's going to get into some legal matters uh, because they're not just going to be a religious society, but they're going to be a theocracy. <clears throat> and he says, if a man or a woman living among you in one of the towns the Lord gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God in violation of His covenant and contrary to My command has worshipped other gods, bowing down to them or to the sun or the moon or the stars of the sky, and this has been brought to your attention... In other words, if you hear that someone has violated the covenant by worshiping other gods, if you hear someone has, has turned away from the covenant and gone after other gods, if you hear about it, he says, uh, brought to your attention, you must investigate it thoroughly, verse 4, if it is true and it has been proved that the, this detestable thing has been done in Israel, so not hearsay, but actual proof that it's actually been done. Take the man or the woman who has done this evil deed to your city gate and stone that person to death. And the city gate is the civic center of the day. The city gate means the, is the public area. It's where um, judgment took place at the city gate. It's where land transfers happened. All the way back in Genesis, we saw Abraham gathering the elders at the city gate in order to procure land. Um, that practice goes on throughout the whole period of the Old Testament. The city gates were like city hall, basically. City hall was at the gates. And so it's saying if you find out that, something that, that, that someone within your people has become a Canaanite, basically, and it's proven, first investigate it thoroughly. And if it's proven, listen to the language that's used, investigate thoroughly. If proven there's no hearsay there's no like Salem witch trials where so and so oh I saw them doing this or I saw them praying to this God or I saw them doing that. no no this is very serious like this is a a an open turning away from God and embracing the elements of Canaanite idolatry whether it's through erecting a sacred stone or through bringing in or carving or creating household deities or sacrificing uh, unclean animals or something to the other gods. so it's not just a hearsay thing he says you're to bring them publicly and stone the person to death. Verse 6, and this is the key, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. And the hands of the witness must be the first in putting them to death. Then the hands of all the people you must purge the evil from among you. This is a massive caveat that gets overlooked whenever people think about the Old Testament laws. You could, all these things about you'll you know, stone this person to death, put this person to death, all of it required two witnesses at least. Two eyewitnesses in order to happen. Anything short of that, no death penalty. Two eyewitnesses. So this is hugely important because we think, oh, they were just putting people to death left and right. No, 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 no. This is, this is a clear check on this you know, willy-nilly use of capital punishment. There had to be two eyewitnesses. Think how that would radically change our laws today. People on death row through circumstantial evidence or through a jury just kind of being convinced based on testimony of not an eyewitness but a character witness or this and that. No, 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 none of that in Scripture. Two eyewitnesses. You don't have two eyewitnesses, no death penalty. 
That in and of itself is one way that, that Scripture radically challenges other forms of justice in the ancient world and in the modern world. And the second one, even more important, the witness was the one who had to cast the first stone. The witness. This would, in, would massively prohibit frivolous charges. Because if you are mad at somebody you may be tempted to take them to court to sue them, or you may be tempted to, you know, get the law to punish them, or you may attempt to... But if you actually have to take the stone and be the first person to throw it to kill this person, that raises the stakes. And it's not something that can be easily done in anger or in haste, because then the whole community... It's a public thing. So as a witness, you have to be staking your entire life on your testimony. Because elsewhere in Scripture, what we read is if you are found to be a lying witness, you get the punishment that they would have gotten. So if you lie, so, so this prohibits somebody, if somebody's not sure, oh, I got attacked in the night, I think it was that guy because he kind of talked like that or he kind of looked like that or he's from that town. That didn't cut it. You had to be sure this was the person. Now what that did was those cases where somebody was attacked, where there were witnesses, where somebody was sure, then there's no justice technicalities or loopholes that the guilty would get off on. Unlike our system today. And if you weren't sure, there was no uh, temptation or, or, or impetus to falsely accuse someone if your life was on the line. And later they were vindicated and it was found that you were lying. So these two things that, that very frequently, very infrequently get mentioned in terms of Old Testament law, to me, are profoundly important. I mean, these are kind of highlight, circle, underline type important caveats in Scripture because they, they have so much to teach us about God upholding both justice and, uh, well, actually upholding justice because it's both sides. Justice is punishing the guilty, vindicating the innocent. That's what justice is there for. And so you see that in God giving Israel, and when He's starting to describe their government and how it will function, He starts with justice. He doesn't start with, let me tell you what the king should do. He's going to tell about if they decide to do a king, what that should be about, but that will come later. The first thing God is concerned about is justice. So some people don't like it when they say, oh, well, these preachers need to just stick to preaching religion and not, not get into this social justice stuff. Slow your roll. The Bible has a lot to say about social justice. A lot to say about it. But it also has to say things about personal righteousness, holiness, you know, all the other things that people on the other side like to uphold. So again, the Bible balances out our modern uh, dichotomies pretty well, and it actually makes everybody uncomfortable. No matter where you stand on all types of issues, the Bible will challenge you on something. But in this case, this idea of just, you know, well, you know, be tough on crime and, and put them to death and let God sort them out. And, this, you know, like this is very much a ho, 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 wait, wait, this is important. And it's, it's key. And if somebody's life is on the line and going to be forfeit, they're breaking the covenant, then if they are guilty, then their sin is upon their head and they are to be punished. And it's the whole community is to do it. Not just wait for God to send a lightning bolt from the sky. So this actually brings Israel into the sphere of being God's agent of judgment. But that does not say 
That doesn't baptize every decision that Israel makes as holy and just because there are these checks and there are these balances put in place. So it's incredibly fascinating, especially in the world of ancient uh, law and especially compared to modern law today. And this informs how we look at all kinds of things, whether it's the, the criminal justice system, the concept of a grand jury, the concept of death row, capital punishment, all of these issues where Christians hold all these different opinions on, wherever we end up at, we should begin here with the concepts that are being presented in this passage for Israel in the ancient Near East, which was that you do punish the guilty, but you do not punish the innocent. And even if it means letting some of the guilty go because you don't have those two eyewitnesses, that's better than even possibly putting an innocent person to death. And how that affects how we view death penalty things today, I'll leave that up to you and your own groups and your own churches to work out. But the heart of Scripture, the, the, the ethic that underlies it is right here. And it was ground into Israel from the start. This is how you're going to be as a society. And then it says, but... If cases, this is verse 8, if cases come before your courts that are too difficult for you to judge, this is talking about the local cities. Each city would have its own elders. That's who you would bring before the city gates. But there would be some cases that may be too difficult in that city to judge. Whether bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults, take them to the place the Lord your God will choose. Go to the priests. This is where the tabernacle will end up. Go to the priests who are Levites and to the judge who is in office at that time. Inquire of them, and they will give you the verdict. You must act according to the decisions they give you at the place the Lord will choose. Be careful to do everything they direct you to do. Act according to the law they teach you and the decisions they give you. Do not turn aside from what they tell you, to the right or to the left. The man who shows contempt for the judge or for the priest who stands ministering there to the Lord your God must be put to death. You must purge the evil from Israel. All the people will hear and be afraid and will not be contemptuous again. So now he's upholding what they're saying is basically what Moses did in his life. Moses appointed people. If you remember back in Exodus and in Numbers, Moses had people he appointed. And they heard the normal everyday cases and the cases that were too hard for them to decide, they brought to Moses. What did Moses do? He went to the tabernacle. He inquired of the Lord. That's how he got the decision. So this is God building in saying, hey, there will be some cases that are going to be too hard. I will help you in this. I will aid you as you seek justice. He wasn't just turning them over to their own devices. He was actually giving them the ability to basically be just, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. All the stuff that he, the prophets would say later, that's what he desires. God was giving them the ability to do that, but he wasn't just turning them over and saying, now you take care of everything. There was law, there was teaching, and then there was also the presence of God among his people to guide them in that. So it's this, it's, it's kind of, it's like taking the training wheels and raising them up a little bit. Right? God's, he's, he's, as they go into their new state, as they go into their new, um, their new realm, being a, a former nation of slaves, a gravel of mixed multitude and slaves, now they're actually going to be a people in a land with their own towns and their own proceedings. He's giving them the ability to start ministering and, and administering justice in their midst. 
So he's walking with them, but he's also giving them stuff to do. It's this really cool interchange and this balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And he's also building into them the concept of, hey, my tabernacle, that's where the priests and the Levites minister and the judge would preside. My tabernacle is the center of our life. Civic, religious, cultural, all of it. And so the nation is learning. If it's something too hard for us, we try to do what we can, but if we can't do it, then we look to the Lord. And so it creates this relationship that's pretty fascinating. Now we get to finally, after the concept of judges and courts and and all of that, now we get to the idea of a king. In this section, the last part of Deuteronomy 17, this is the only really section in the Torah about potential king. And this is, note what it's going to say, this is permissive legislation, not uh, commanding legislation. This is, this is casuistic, not apodictic, if you want to use theological terms. This is, this is if, then, rather than you shall. And you'll see what I mean. It says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one that is not a brother Israelite. Verse 16, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. So these are the three things that God prohibits the king of Israel from doing. One, acquiring large amounts of horses. What's the big deal? What if the king likes my little pony? What does it matter? No, horses were for war. Horses were for chariots and cavalry. That's why you had horses in the ancient Near East. They weren't, you didn't use work horses. You used donkeys, you used oxen, you used cattle. Horses were for war. They were tanks. They were military vehicles. This is saying this king is not going to go and build up large armies by accumulating what the nations around you do, which is they, they, they seek day and night to build up their horses, build up their chariots, build up their ranks. And God's saying, if you do put a king over you, if you say we want a king to be like the other nations, your king better not be like a king from the other nations. And the one thing that kings from all the other nations did was they tried to build the biggest, strongest army and that involved getting massive amounts of horses. If you read all throughout the Old Testament, you'll see exactly what it means when it talks about that. Second thing they weren't supposed to do is they were not <clears throat> supposed to get multiply wives, is what the text says, but marry many women. Now, is this a command for monogamy? Not necessarily, although God's ideal is monogamy, as Jesus affirmed. Um, but this is talking about what kings of the ancient world did more than anything else other than buying horses, was made political alliances. And you made political alliances through marrying foreign wives. You married the prince of so-and-so, and that secured the alliance. I mean, if you've ever seen any medieval drama, any you know, period piece, you know how this works. From Victorian fiction to Game of Thrones, that's what it's all about. You marry to create alliances. And so that's what the kings did. And God's saying, you're king. If you do say we want a king, like the other nations, They better not act like the kings of the other nations and make these political alliances by marrying foreign women because their heart will be led astray. That's the whole point of a 
marriage alliance anyway. If I want to make peace with this nation, instead of, being, instead of making sure that I'm doing everything to be a good neighbor to this nation and treating them fairly and equitably and all of this stuff, it's a lot easier to, if I have a daughter to just marry her off. And now we're family. And so there's kind of that family bond that lets me get away with a little more because we're family. Right? And that's the whole point of these marriage political alliances. And God was saying your king's not going to do that. And then the third thing, your king must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Your king is not going to be a god on earth. Your king is not going to be extravagantly wealthy. That's, that, that actually is bad when your king is extravagantly wealthy. And yet, what does every king and queen in the history of the world have in common? They are extravagantly wealthy. This is talking about Solomon. Solomon is the poster child for exactly what God's saying not to be. David was a good start towards this, and then Solomon took it full throttle. You can trace the downfall of Israel as an empire from the moment Solomon started accumulating horses, marrying foreign women, and building his own lavish palace. That is the point in the book of Kings when Israel takes a nosedive. And it never recovers. The high point of Israel was reached under Solomon, and then he did exactly these things to the point where some critical scholars look at this and go, oh, this had to have been written after the time of Solomon because it describes him so perfectly. Or Solomon, like everyone, has a sinful human heart and was led astray and did not heed the warnings that Moses had given centuries before. But either way, this is this. So when you look at what God wants in his people for a leader God never prohibits them from having a king he never says you can't have a king now later during the events of uh, Saul's life uh, when Saul's chosen as king Samuel the the time in which Israel does it they do it in a way that will be um, not in line with what God wants for them not for their best they'll actually choose but they won't choose they're going to do this exact thing and God's going to say you don't trust me, you don't want a king, and they're going to say, we want a king, and so it's, all right, you're going to get it. Um, but all of the kings of Israel will eventually be tempted by these things. But every king in history is. I mean, every, every leader, even, you know, we don't live in a country with kings, but what do we look for in a leader? If we're not careful, what do we look for? Powerful, strong military leader, wealthy, incredibly wealthy, as our last election showed us. People value that, because then you can't be bought. Um, and the, the making of these political alliances through using marriage as a tool rather than as a covenant. I mean, every leader in history has fallen into one or more or all of these traps. And this tells you what the heart of God is for his leaders. And so when we see leaders like that, it doesn't even matter if it's a king. It doesn't matter if it's a president. It doesn't matter if it's a CEO. It doesn't matter if it's a pastor. When you see leaders that exhibit these traits... It just should be a little, your spidey sense should tingle a little bit. Like, hey, this necessarily is not a good thing, no matter how successful this person is. This may not be the heart of God, and, and we may be in for some rough times. So that's the warning God gives, what kind of king they're not to be. Now, what kind of king are they to be? Verse 18, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. What law? The text says this Torah. The covenant. What covenant? The covenant that Deuteronomy is a ratification of. 
which is the book of the covenant, Exodus. The, 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 the law God gave His people. So the king is supposed to not get a copy. The king is supposed to write a copy. The king is supposed to sit down with his scroll and be a scribe and write out the covenant law. Because that's how you learn something. is by writing it out. By meditating on it. By It's the king's copy. It's going to be written in his own hand. It's copied from that that the priests and the Levites keep. So even the king, and this is radical in, in the ancient Near East because no other society that we know of had this dynamic. Even the king is under the, the temple priesthood. Even the king is under the Torah of God. In the other cultures, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, the king was God. The king was the representative of God on earth. The king appointed the priests. The king made the theology. The king made the laws. In this one, no, the king is under the law. That's a radical concept in the ancient world and even in modern monarchies in many places. The king was under the law. And so the king was to write down the law. The king was to be a scribe, at least in this sense. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law, this Torah, and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. How many kings have you ever known of that successfully lived this out? Right? Not consider himself better. What's the point of being king if you can't consider yourself better than the peasants? What's the point of being the king? What's the point of being the boss if you don't get the perks? And so God is saying He is not to do this. He is not to consider Himself better. He is to consider Himself one of His brothers. It didn't say one of His subjects. One of his brothers. And so when, when Israel was to look at for a king, see, when Israel, when it came time to anoint the king, um, the first king that was anointed, God gave Israel the kind of king that they thought they wanted and let him go and let him play it out. And we see what happened to his life in Saul's life. Now, Saul had everything that looked like a good king. You know, Saul, we'd say today, he looked presidential, he looked the part. But his heart was not. So when God took the kingdom from Saul, and Saul was like, what's going on? And Samuel says to Saul, God has chosen someone else. He has chosen a man according to his heart. God has made his own choice according to God's heart. He's chosen a man who's going to... And who did he choose? David. David was the least king-like of anyone. David was a shepherd, lower class, blue collar. David was not even the firstborn, the secondborn, the thirdborn. He was like the seventhborn or eighthborn. I can't remember. He was way down the line. And, and he was just this nobody, this runt. And God pulled him and said, that's who I'm going to use. Why? Because God looks on the inside. People look on the outside. And so that's what we have to wrestle with as, as we look in the world today, looking at leaders you know, whether clergy, whether in business, whether in politics, we look for leaders who are inspiring. Are we looking at the right thing? Are we inspired by what's inside the leader? Or are we inspired by the things that look inspiring, that seem logical? I mean, it seems like a good idea. If you want a king, he should be one who increases the military. He should be one who increases the wealth. And he should be one who makes these alliances through marriage. And all. I mean, in the ancient world, that, that makes perfect sense. 
But just like we saw a few weeks ago in terms of God's economy, God's politics are a little different too. And Israel is going to be countercultural in the midst of the culture that God called them to. So today then, the challenge that Deuteronomy gives us is how then, as believers in the new covenant, we don't live under a theocracy, we don't live under a king, we, we don't have a temple with sacrifices and all of that. How does the spirit of what God has commanding Israel spill over into and inform how we look today to our leaders? Even more important, how we, those of us who are leaders, how we act and how we guard our leadership from going down this path. Because, like we pointed out earlier, Israel goes down this path. Israel's kings go down this path. And Israel as a nation, verse, the, the last verse, if the king doesn't do these things and does these things, verse 20 at the end, then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. And that never happens. It never happens in Israel's history because the kings do not do this. And so they wait and wait and wait and wait for one who will come and be the true king who will not do these things. And then lo and behold, the New Testament actually tells us, okay, this is how that kingship actually is going to happen. And then that's the side we live on today. But we're out of time. So next week, Deuteronomy 18, very important passage. Um, especially for how we read the New Testament. There's some leftovers here. There's some good-looking dessert here. There's some seconds. Feel free if you need to take a to-go box. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Come back and bring a friend.